0: us on our Sunday mornings in Advent, we have been going through the names from the book of Isaiah in chapter 7 and in chapter 9. We've been reading through Isaiah chapter 9, 6 through 7, and we've been stopping at each of the names to look and see what was Isaiah prophesying about when it came to the coming Messiah. And so I'll read that passage of scripture for us now. Isaiah 9, 6 through 7. For unto us, The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. We are going to be looking at just the name Everlasting Father. And as we've been talking about from uh, every Sunday morning, as we've been looking at these different names that Isaiah gave to the coming Messiah, we must remember that as we we look at these, that these are characteristics of the Messiah, not necessarily something that he would be called every day of his life. And so these are the epitome of who Jesus would be, how Jesus would live as the Messiah. On Sunday last week, we looked at mighty God and realized that that Jesus is God, was God, and will always be God. And the importance of His divinity is vital. He was a mighty God, someone who fights our battles for us. And we look and we look at this idea of everlasting Father. Now, I don't know if you're like me, but when I stop and I think about eternity, my stomach has like this weird cringe in it. Is anybody weird like me? Yeah? No, I'm all alone. Wow. Okay. Pastor, you're weird. (laughs) It's not about fear, though. For me, when I think about eternity, it's a concept that I just can't wrap my mind around fully. Because everything on earth ends. Your favorite book, it ends. Your favorite book series, you might have another book, and another book, and another book, but eventually the author will die, and it ends. Right? Unless their son takes it up like Tolkien's son, and, but he's done now. Right? We see movies, our favorite movies, they end. We laugh, we cry, and we sit there and say, why is it over? Our favorite shows, even though some of these shows last for 21 seasons, eventually they end. Everything in life ends, even life itself. For us on this planet, we will die. But those of us who believe in Jesus, we know that we will live forevermore. But the idea, the concept of eternity is so antithetical to the way our, bri- our minds think, our brains have a difficulty understanding eternity. So if you do have that cringe, I guess I'm all alone. If I do have that cringe when I think of eternity, it's because it's hard to wrap your mind around. And we look at this name of Jesus that Isaiah prophesies, and he says he will be called everlasting father. So what does Isaiah mean? Why is this name important? We've been taking time to look at each name to describe who Jesus was, who Jesus is, and who Jesus will be. We understand that this was a hundred thousand years before, not a hundred thousand, but hundreds and thousands of years before Jesus would even come. These prophecies were something that the people were longing for, waiting for, as they were a people oppressed. Isaiah wrote these words to a people who, when he wrote them, were not yet oppressed, but shortly after were completely oppressed. They would have not understood right away why Isaiah was writing these words, even though their kingdom was continuously dwindling. But a hundred years later, as they would read these words, they would say, Please, Messiah, come. We need to be freed from this tyrannical government that is watching over us. We need a king, we need a mighty God, a wonderful counselor, and an everlasting father. So what is the significance of everlasting father? This, out of all of the names from Isaiah, can be one of the most confusing, right? Jesus, everlasting father, how is that possible? Well, I want to take each word, everlasting and father, and break it apart and then put it back together because I like to break things and put them back together so that we can understand what the pieces are. Some of you, you love to build Lego, and you love to break them apart and put them back together. Some of you build them and you glue them together, and you don't want anyone to touch them, right? But here we're going to break it apart and put it back together. So the word everlasting. The first thing I think that Isaiah is trying to get us to see when it comes to everlasting is that Jesus is, was, and always will be. Jesus is, was, and will always be. We see this in in John chapter 1, as we see Jesus described as the Logos, the Word of God, which was God. And he came to his own, and they did not recognize him, but he was from the beginning, from all things flowed through him. If you look at 1 John 1 through 14, you see this powerful word of who Jesus is, was, and will forever be. This brings us back, as we saw on Sunday, mighty God. The deity of Christ cannot be divorced from the humanity of Christ. It is absolutely vital that Jesus was and is everlasting. Because only an eternal sacrifice can have eternal ramifications for our sin. If he was not God, if he was not eternal, his death would have been temporal. In the the way that we see blood sacrifice in the book of Leviticus, it was only for a year that this blood would cover over the sin of Israel. So every year, they had to sacrifice another imperfect lamb for the people and have a goat that they would send out as a scapegoat, holding and running away with the sins of the people of Israel. This would happen on a yearly basis because those were not eternal sheep. But Jesus was the eternal, everlasting Lamb. So when Isaiah has this discussion of mighty God, everlasting Father, he is trying to put like a neon sign in front of our face and say, Jesus is, was, and will always be God. You cannot divorce his divinity from his humanity. And this also, I think, when we think of Advent, we think of Christmas, is probably the hardest thing for us to grasp our minds around, that God became human. Yeah, I say this often. When it comes to Jesus' resurrection, my mind can comprehend someone who comes back to life. You can think through that process. Someone died and they woke back up. It's like they slept and then they're they're not sleeping anymore. That, That concept of resurrection, I can cognitively understand with my mind. But God becoming a baby, that is a mystery that really only can come through faith for us to believe in. But because of Christ's resurrection and the proof thereof, we can know that everything Jesus said about himself is true. It all flows together. But Isaiah wants us to understand that Jesus is, was, and will always be. The next thing I think he wants us to see in the word everlasting is that Jesus' reign upon the throne of David will last forever and ever. He will reign upon the throne of David forever and ever. We see in the, in this aspect that Isaiah is talking about mighty God, the warrior who would come. We saw on Sunday that there is a now but not yet reality to the prophecies of Isaiah. Because Jesus, as we talked about on Sunday, Jesus fulfilled almost all of the prophecies about him, made about him in the first advent. But Jesus promised that he would return and he would finish fulfilling all of the prophetic words with which were spoken of the Messiah. So this this warrior king that those in Israel were passionately waiting for, to be freed from the oppression of the Romans or whoever was oppressing them at that time, they were hoping for a mighty God, a warrior king who would come with a sword and annihilate everybody and sit on the throne of David forever and ever as king over all the earth. Well, we know that Jesus' battle When he came to earth was not against Rome, but against a far greater adversary, Satan. And he defeated Satan's sin and death upon the cross and proved it to be true in the resurrection. But he promises he will return. We saw on Sunday in Revelation 19, he will return to this earth in power, in glory, in might with a sword out of his mouth and a white robe upon himself dipped in blood and a white horse that he will be riding upon to conquer finally everything and bring all things back to the way which they were made to be. So when we see this word everlasting, there is a look of what is not yet, that he has conquered Satan's sin and death, but he will come and sit upon the throne forever and ever and ever. A commentator, his name is Moiter, states this, everlasting is both general and specific. When people requested a king, they wished to replace the episodic rule of the judges with the permanency of monarchy. The king to come is the ultimate fulfillment of this longing. When the Israelites were asking for a king in the book of Judges, they, were, they did not like the constant revolving door of Judges. They wanted a king. They wanted a king. And finally, after Saul, the king that they were hoping and waiting for, King David arrived, and he began a new time of life in Israel. But he was not God. He is not an everlasting king. Only Jesus is. David, in some ways, was a shadow of the king to come. The one who would last forever. Another commentator strengthens this by saying, Everlasting is a title that does not apply to any human ruler, except that the Davidic promise speaks of one who will rule on the throne of David forever. Since 9 7 from Isaiah refers to a person ruling forever on the throne of David, the everlasting father in verse 6 must be the same ruler. So when we look at this word everlasting, we can remember that Christ is, was, and always will be. That at the end of all things, at the end of all time, that as we know it, because all things come to an end, at the end of all time, as we know it, the king will return. And he will take his rightful place on the throne of David forever and ever in the new heaven and the new earth. As we've been mentioning all month long, when we come to the first Advent, when we look at Christmas Day, it is not just to celebrate a baby in a manger, although that is half of what we are to look forward to. We are to look forward to the second coming. Because in His first coming, He promised a second coming. We can have this anticipation and this excitement that Christ will, in fact, return. The same anticipation and eager desire that the Israelites had, you and I can also and should also have when we come to Christmas. The king will return. We can participate in his return as well. In Matthew 24, Jesus tells his disciples that you have a part to play. As you go into all the world and proclaim the goodness of Jesus, he will not return until everyone in the earth has heard the good news. Which means you and I, as they say in the olden days, we can hasten the return of Christ. We can make it happen faster when we participate in the gospel truth of missionary work. We can anticipate his return and participate in his return as well. So we've talked about everlasting, the two points, that Jesus is, was, and will always be, and that Jesus will reign upon the throne of David forever. Now we come to the confusing word of Father. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. When we look at this, we, we can be a little bit confused because Jesus is known as the, the Son, the part of the Trinity that we say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But it seems here that Isaiah is <coughs> calling Jesus Father, and it's confusing which part of the Trinity is Jesus or which part of the Trinity is the Messiah. But the point that he's trying to make is not that the one who would come would be the Father, but that he would represent the Father, that he would show to the world the Father, and we see in the scriptures that this is exactly what is said of Jesus, and Jesus says this of himself. In G- uh, John 14, 8 through 10, Jesus states, he said, Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. And Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. And in Colossians 1, verse 15, Paul says of Jesus that he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Here we see that Jesus was promised to be the everlasting Father. And he tells his disciples that if you see me, you have seen the Father. That he is the perfect reflection of who God the Father is to us in the incarnational way of human flesh. The words that he said were the words that the Father told him to say. The things that he did were the things that the Father told him to do because he is the image of the invisible God. When we look upon Jesus, we can see the heart and the passion and the fullness of who God the Father is as well. This is the beauty and the mystery of him being everlasting Father. Warren Weersby said this, Everlasting Father does not suggest that the Son is also the Father, for each person in the Godhead is distinct. Father of eternity is a better translation. Among the Jews, the word father means originator or source. For example, Satan is the father or originator of lies. If you want anything eternal, you must get it from Jesus Christ, for he is the father of eternity. He was, he is, and he always will be. God is the father of eternity. He has created the time that we live in, but he is not confined by time. I think this is another one of those very difficult things (coughs) for us to grasp because we have watches on our wrists. We have the sun that goes around. We have clocks everywhere. We have phones that have clocks. Everything we can tell time with. Some of us are still late for stuff, though. (laughs) Put alarm on maybe a little earlier. (laughs) But we know and understand time. God created time, but God is outside of time. That's a difficult thing to understand. But it is the truth that he is so powerful that he is bound by nothing, not even time. That he is the father of eternity. What else does this mean with Jesus that he is the the father of eternity? (coughs) I believe it's this, that Jesus desires intimacy with mankind. What drove The son to become a baby? What drove the son to live on earth in a very tumultuous time to be a Jew? What drove Jesus, the Messiah, to the cross? It's one word, and we lit the candle for it today love. Love is what drove Christ to the manger. Love is what drove Christ the cross. Love is what drives Christ in us and through us each and every day. For God is love. A father is to love his children. When we look at scripture and how God the Father is described, it is always a loving picture. He even talks about discipline being part of love. Children, I know it's very impossible for you to understand but when your parents discipline you, it's because they love you. Because they want you to be normal human beings when you grow up. There, there's part of me that my parents failed. I'm not super normal. <laughs> but the reality is, is that discipline is even an aspect of love. God is love. The Father loved you. So loved you that he sent his one and only son. Many of us, whether we've grown up in church or had been to church sometime in our life, we know that passage of Scripture, John 3, 16. Because the Father loves you, because the Father loved me, we have Christmas. And that is the beauty of God's desire for intimacy with you. At the beginning of all time, Adam and Eve in the garden, they walked hand in hand, arm in arm, side by side with God. But because of sin, that relationship was broken and they were cast out of the Garden of Eden. Intimacy was broken. But when Christ came to wash us white from our sins, to wash them away through the cross, the blood of Jesus, when we repent, when we confess and we believe on Him, we are cleansed. And that relationship of intimacy is restored. Because Christ desires you. Because he loves you. Because he loves his creation. He came as a baby. He came and he lived as a man. And he died as a criminal. One commentator says this that (coughs) father used of the Lord Father speaks of his concern, care, and discipline. Ascribing fatherhood to Jesus is unusual given that we usually reserve it for God the Father, but Jesus does play a fatherly role towards his disciples and even us. He plays a fatherly role to us. As we come to this Advent season, as we are almost to the crescendo of our celebration in just two days' time, some of you with very young children will wake up very, very early on Christmas morning Some of us with older children, we might have hit a upgrade and we might not wake up until seven. That's still early for some of you college students, but for me, that is sleeping in. (laughs) But we're coming to the crescendo, the ultimate joy where we celebrate on Christmas Day. As we come to that day, may you focus upon who Jesus was described as in the book of Isaiah. We read from the book of Luke the the beautiful picture of the shepherds hearing the angels singing a chorus, glory to God, on the highest. And they had to go and see this glorious thing. May that passion of the shepherds, may that anticipation of Isaiah drive you to your celebration of the first advent of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we can come to this place this evening. We thank you for the love that is within you for us. Although we don't deserve it, we still receive it when you offer it and we accept it. I pray, God, that as we come to Christmas morning, that we will have deep anticipation and wondrous celebration remembering your coming as a baby and looking forward to your coming as a king from heaven. Thank you. In your name. Amen. Amen. At this time, we're going to be singing Silent Night, correct? And so if you can have your candles, and everyone, if you would circle around, if we can dim the lights in the sanctuary as well, what we will do is I will take the candle (coughs) of love, And I will light the first couple folks here with their candle. And then I'll come to the back and start lighting more candles as well.